So a little background, Luke 22. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, The Feast of Unleavened Bread was the most important, number one, of the three great Jewish festivals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. The Passover meal, which is where we're going to dive into first, was on the 14th of, of Nisan, and the seven days following the Passover meal are called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Passover was a festival initiated in Exodus chapter 12 uh, to remember that 10th plague. Remember the plagues that Moses, that really God had upon Egypt to get his people delivered. That 10th plague was, um, had to be the most personal plague, I guess, the, the hardest plague to deal with because it was a plague where Moses told Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, then what's going to happen at midnight is the fir- your firstborn, the firstborn of your cattle, the firstborn of your children in every house is going to die. You're going to die. And the only reason that didn't happen to the children of Israel was that they were told to kill a lamb or a goat and take the, the blood from that lamb or goat and sprinkle it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the door. And with that applied to their door, the death angel or whatever would pass over, right, over that house, and that firstborn child would be safe. So that's what happened. And that was the last great miracle, and the children of Israel were released after that. So this was a commemorative, the feast of uh, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread because remember they left quickly. They left Egypt real quickly. They had unleavened bread. They didn't have a chance to leaven the bread and raise it and cook it like regular. They just unleavened. So it's a, that's it's all tied together. So let's start. Verses one through six. That's the first section I want to touch on. And again, I'm just going to give you a few little application points on each one of these and you can think about it and hopefully tuck one away in your heart. So 22, one through six. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to portray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So what's going on? It's real simple. The, the religious leaders, the Jews, the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they were done with Jesus. Done. They were just done. And done to them means we're going to kill him. I mean, I, I would be kind of weird around here. Like if there's some guy, you know, Matt's teaching up here and great messages, but there's some guy out in the lobby who's drawing a big crowd and he's doing, I mean, it's, you know, it would be, it'd be awkward and we'd probably have to deal with that. And, but we probably wouldn't, Matt and I probably wouldn't say, well, let's kill the guy, you know. We're not going to go that far. Be a little nicer than that. Um, but that's, that's where they're at. Jesus had to go. And, but he was in favor of the people. The people loved him. See, the Bible says they feared the people because the people were always around Jesus. And if, if you would have been there, you would have been around him too. He was attractive. He was like a magnet. I don't mean attractive physically, but his personality, his teaching would attract the crowds. So they had to find a way of getting him when he wasn't with the crowds, secret, secretly, somehow when he wasn't with all the people. He was always with the people during the day. So Satan takes possession of Judas. That's kind of whacked out, right? Satan takes possession. Not just a demon, the the, the demon of demons, the chief of demons, takes possession of Judas, and a deal is made to betray, betray Jesus. But Jesus wants to have this one last supper, this Passover celebration that would initiate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He wants to have this Passover with his, his, his family, really, his disciples. They were really his closest, closest family. One simple point from this section. You need to deal with sin in your life. 
It seems like every time I'm up here, I'm saying something like that because every time I'm up here, it's important. Judas was a monster betrayer and certainly was aided by, the, by, the, by Satan himself, no doubt. That's, that's, another, that's another level, but I don't think he started that way. All we know about Judas was he was a thief <laughs> and he held the money bag, right? Remember Mary and Martha would be in John chapter 12 and Mary's anointing Jesus' feet with that really expensive perfume and wiping his feet with her hair. Judas pipes up and says, you shouldn't be doing that. That's a waste of that. You could sell that perfume instead of doing that to Jesus. You get 300 denarii. That's like a year's wages. But where would that have gone if she did sell it? It would have went into into the money bag for good old Judas to spend however he wanted to, I suppose. He was a thief. He was greedy and he was a thief. But that's the way with sin... Your sin and my sin and the sin of Judas, it always starts smallish, but it's never content to stay small. I I hope you know that about sin. It's not ever content to stay what it is. It's always looking for a greater hold in your life. And eventually, ultimately, the final goal is your death. It's trying to kill you. What happened to Judas? It killed him. If it can't kill you physically like it did Judas, it'll kill you emotionally, relationally, spiritually, in any way and every way it can. That's what sin does. That's what sin did in Judas, and that's what sin will do in you and I. It starts small and it's never satisfied. A second just little thought, I guess, with this text is a Christian, a true born-again Christian, cannot be possessed. It's not going to happen. Because we're already possessed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's not going to share with a demon. No way ever could that happen. But you know what? An evil spirit could possess a churchgoer that's not a Christian. Totally. An evil spirit could possess a churchgoer that's not a believer. Completely vulnerable. But a true born-again believer someone who's confessed Jesus as Lord, believes that he died for their sin, not just the sins of the world, but their sin personally rose again. Born again, man. Possessing already the Holy Spirit. Let's keep rolling. 7 through 23. Verse 7 through 23. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This is a big big ritual up at the temple, the the, the sacrificing of the Passover lamb. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will be showing you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. That'd be a Passover meal. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have certainly, I'm sorry, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. 
one simple thought in this, in this section. I don't feel like I need to talk about communion tonight. That may disappoint a few. But we talk about communion here a lot. And I have 60-something verses to cover. And I think it's covered so well every Sunday here by Matt that I'm going to scooch past that a little bit. I hope that's all right tonight. I'll give you your permission to do that. But I do want to talk about this. When Jesus told them there's a betrayer in my midst, they said, is it I? You don't see that in Luke's gospel. You see that in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 26, 22, recounting the same story. They say, is it I? Is, it, it, am I? Am I the betrayer? Which was a real, a real step up for the disciples. If you follow the disciples for these three years, they, they don't always say the best things. They say a lot of things that are not right. This is a good thing to say. They got it right. Of course, they got it on the last day of his life, but they, they got something right. Is it, is it, is it me? Am, am I that betrayer? And I think at some level, we've all betrayed Jesus. See, when you read the Bible, it's easy to, to look at a Judas or, or look at the stories and look at what did or didn't happen, blind people, lame people, deaf people healed. But see, that's, that's us. Th- those are stories about us. We're, we're those people. We're the blind. We're the lame. We're the deaf. And we're the betrayer. I know that's uncomfortable. And hopefully we're not anything near the level that Judas was. He was the ultimate betrayer, no doubt. He walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, did miracles through the power of God. And he betrayed him. So that's a, that's a level of betrayal that's unlike any other. But... Um, he was a betrayer and we are too. Our words have betrayed him. Our silence has betrayed him. Our actions have betrayed Jesus at times and our inactions have betrayed him at times. Sins of commission, sins of omission. We're just like Judas in some ways. Only there's a difference. He betrayed for 30 pieces of silver And I've betrayed him for much, much less than that. Much less than that. I've betrayed him for nothing. And I'm not alone. So when you read about Judas, we all have that spirit in us. We have dropped the ball. We have betrayed the Lord in ways that we don't even want to recognize. And we don't have to continue on that vein, but I just want you to know that. What he did was terrible, but I've done it for free. I've done it for free. So the good news is this. There is now, therefore, there is therefore now, what? No condemnation. No condemnation. When I betray the Lord in subtle ways, when you betray the Lord in subtle ways, there's there now for, there's therefore now no condemnation. Conviction, yes, praise God for that. Condemnation, no, no condemnation. Because the wrath that God should pour out on me for my betrayal, he bore. He bore in Gethsemane. He bore it on Calvary. He, he, he covered that for us. I just want you to realize that afresh tonight, if, if it's possible. We all drop the ball, but because of Jesus, because of what he did, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. Let's keep reading. Pick it up in verse 24. And we're going to read through verse 30. That's our third section here. So a dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to, wit, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the, king, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, that the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. 
And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, disciples get into an argument, which is just so random, isn't it? It's such a sober event. And somewhere during that course of that supper, the disciples blatantly, quietly are communicating to each other somehow who's, who's, who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus reminds them that true greatness is found in serving. That's true greatness. It's not what you see in government these days. It's not what you see hardly anywhere, it seems. But true greatness in God's economy is through serving. And, G- and Jesus would actually demonstrate that this night at this supper according to what's spoken about in John 13. He what? He washed their feet. He demonstrated this. That night, at that supper, sometime, before, after this moment, I don't know. No one had washed feet. Probably what you would do in that culture is when you sit down at a dinner like this, you would recline. So you're, you're on your side, on one hand, eating your feet are out that way next to somebody's head, right? That's less good. And those feet are dirty and whatever, smelly and whatever. And so the custom was smart. You just, your feet would get washed when you come in. A servant would do that, but no one would do that. Why? Because they're arguing among themselves who's the greatest. Because whoever wasn't the greatest would probably be the one that should have washed the feet. However they did, that's their math, I think. But Jesus just, the Bible says he, John 13, he, He stood up from the meal and he took off his robe, which is a symbol of his authority, and he girded himself with a towel the exact same way a servant would. And then he went around, disciple by disciple, probably even to Judas, and washed their feet, did what should have been done earlier in the meal. And so the application for me that I want for you guys to think about is this. Will there be greatness in heaven? Because Jesus would say to them, hey, listen, today on earth, greatness comes through serving. But listen, he would tell them, you're going to be great in heaven. You're going to be great in the kingdom. You're going to sit with me at my table in the kingdom. That's pretty awesome. And you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That's as good as it gets for them. But what about us? Do you want to be great in heaven? Do you believe you can be great in heaven? Do you think God wants you to be great in heaven? I think he does. I really do. Great in heaven is going to be different than great on earth. Great in heaven will be a celebrated greatness. All will celebrate greatness. It won't be a comparative greatness. You know what I'm saying? Everyone will celebrate greatness in heaven. It won't be this tit-for-tat comparative like oh, eh, like the disciples so greatness will be a beautiful thing a beautiful thing in heaven but I think it's something that we need to think about because God is a rewarder the Bible says for those that seek him for those that serve him God keeps a record God keeps a score. God keeps whatever God keeps in the way God keeps it so that one day in heaven you're going to get rewarded for the way you lived your life on earth. That's what's going to happen to you if you're born again. That's the judgment. That's the day. That's 1 Corinthians 3. That's throughout the New Testament. Throughout the epistles. You're rewarded for your good works. It really matters. It should really matter to us. I don't know if you guys are investors. There's some, probably some investors out here. And I, that's probably a good thing to be an investor. I'm getting a little bit later on in years. And I'm kind of wishing I would have been a little better investor in some things than I was. But, but really, even if I was the best earthly investor and had money and could do whatever money could do in my latter years... It doesn't even pale in comparison to the investment that we can all make in heaven that doesn't end when I die. It goes on forever. 
the greatness that you're given or however God does that goes on forever and ever and ever. And it's a celebrated greatness. Nothing, I can't say that, nothing will matter more. But I think it's going to be super, super, super important. So it matters. Greatness matters. I want you guys to be great. Be an investor. Just invest in eternity because it goes forever. Let's look at 31 through 38. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. That's from Luke 10, by the way. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has, uh, has, has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So what's happening? Satan, who had infiltrated, if you will, Judas, he's after Peter now. The big guy, the big bad guy. He wants Peter, just like Job. Doesn't sound like Job? Satan was present his case to God in heaven. Tell me about, let's, I want Job. Well, this, is, this is the New Testament Job. This is Peter. I want Peter. So, Jesus warns Peter that he will deny him three times before the sun rises. And the last thing in this is Jesus tells his disciples that their future is going to be challenging. See, what he says there at the very end of that text is he says, now you remember, we're going to call it Luke 10, when I sent you out two by two, I said, don't take anything. Don't worry. You're going to be taken care of. You're going to eat. You, don't have to, you, know, you won't have any, your, all your needs will be met. You don't have to take extra this, do extra that. It's going to be really smooth and really easy. And it was. They did miracles. They were taken care of. Now Jesus is saying, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be challenging. Life's going to be challenging. It's different. It's going to be different for you. And I think it's, been, it's going to be different for us. So what does that mean? What's the application for us today? Well, life's going to be challenging. I hope that's not a mystery to any of you. I, I, I'm sure you go, yeah, yeah, I get it. Life can be challenging. Christianity can be challenging. God can be challenging in some ways. So just really quick, what has God promised us? I'll tell you what he has not promised us. And the list is way longer than what I have. This is what God has not promised you as a believer today in January 2020, Applegate Christian Fellowship, Wednesday night. He has not promised you safety. What is it? What's that? I said Applegate. Oh, Lord. I am so sorry. Although I really like Applegate, but that's not... Yeah, at Edgewater Christian Fellowship. And I do not know where that came from. But that's a great little place. Yeah, a great, great big place. So, um, yeah. If you don't know, we actually came from Applegate. We were kind of birthed from them. And evidently that stuck with me. So, um, so let's get back to this. Edgewater Christian Fellowship. God has never promised us, number one, never promised you safety. Never promised you safety. God has never promised you, number two, personal success. That is not a promise from God. You may be personally successful, but that's not a promise from God. God has never promised us comfortable lifestyles. He hasn't. He has not promised us that. God has not promised us emotional health. God has not promised us emotional health. God has not promised us stable relationships. Like I say, Jesus was saying, it's going to be hard. Challenge, life's challenging. It's going to be challenging for you guys. It's going to be challenging for us. 
God has not promised us, never promised us wealth and prosperity. God has never promised us a spouse or a good spouse. (laughs) I have a good spouse, but God has not promised us a spouse. God has not promised us a good spouse. God has not promised us answers to all your questions. He has not promised you that. That's stuff we make up. We just make it up. Because he's a good God and good God should do that for us, right? Right? As we define goodness. But that's not what God's promised us. God's promised us many things. I've just got a few here. But listen to the difference. God has promised us a grace that's made perfect in our weakness. God has promised you that. God has promised to be our refuge and strength and help when we're in trouble. Absolute promise. God has promised he will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. Absolute promise. God has promised that nothing will be able to separate us from his love. Absolute promise. Lastly, and there's so many more. God has promised us that Jesus and the Holy Spirit intercede for us this very moment. God has prayed for you all day long. God has prayed for you all day long. God has prayed for you. And all night long when you're sleeping, guess what? God will pray for you. God will intercede for you. That's a promise. Those are the promises of God. God has promised us an abundant life, no doubt. But God has not promised us the American life. They're different. You know that? They're different. They're different. The happiest people that I've seen overall, in my opinion, in their Christianity and their faith, were in Burkina Faso, Africa. So for a couple, couple weeks, years ago, and uh, those people got, they have nothing, but they have everything. They have an abundant life. The American dream is to be so foreign to them but they have big smiles and those big smiles and those black faces really stand out, you know? Especially at night. You hardly see, just see the smiles. It's just so awesome, man. Happiest people I've ever been around. Sweetest, kindest, seemingly most fulfilled people I've ever been around. They have nothing, really, compared to what we have. Why does it have to be so hard? Why did God make it so challenging, life so challenging for the believer I don't know. There's probably a thousand reasons, but I like what C.H. Spurgeon said. There is no crown without the cross. You're told, I'm told in the New Testament, to carry a cross. And that cross is different flavors and different seasons. Even throughout a day, it might be different. But the challenges of life, carrying the cross, whatever that means, It leads to a crown. And again, that's reward stuff. It's going to matter for eternity. Let's go to verse 39. 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father... If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's more information is obviously in Gethsemane. And if you take all the gospel accounts, it kind of fills it out and plumps up the, the whole thing. But basically what's happening is this. Jesus arrives at Gethsemane. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives. He's left the upper room in Jerusalem. He's gone out the gate, one of the gates, dropped down to the Kidron Valley, which is just the valley just outside the wall. You can see it today. Crosses a creek, and he's almost instantly into Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means oil press. Gethsemane 
means oil press. That's what they did there. It was a place people worked. They had all kinds of different oil presses. And it's where olives were pressed, basically. Olives, they were bruised. There were different kinds of press, presses. There some would bruise them or crush them or beat the, the olive for its oil. And the olive oil then was used for a jillion things in that culture. For food. It was used for um, cosmetics, for medicine, oil for lamps, ceremonial rituals. Remember in the Old Testament, kings and prophets were anointed with oil. Jesus tells his disciples to pray so they don't enter into, tempta- into temptation. Jesus separates himself from the disciples and begins to cry out in prayer. And an angel from heaven comes to strengthen him. The disciples keep falling asleep. In a nutshell, that's what's going on in that text. In April 2005, when I was at Alpgate Christian Fellowship, <laughs> and that's correct, I was able to, to take a pilgrimage, they call it, to, to Israel. And I took my daughter, Jenny, um, and it was awesome. John Corson led it. There was probably 50 or 60 of us, 50-ish probably of us. And probably my three, three favorite places, we went to a lot of places, oh boy, were the northern, the northern end of the Sea of Galilee was probably my favorite place. And then second and third were the Temple Mount because of what happened there and what's going to happen there and Gethsemane. Probably my three favorite places. And Gethsemane is, is um, it's like a, it's like a garden now. And it's beautiful and it's impactful and it's deeply, deeply, deeply spiritual. But you just have to let it soak in. You can't be in a hurry at Gethsemane. You just got to, you got to kind of just, you just got to kind of rest and you got to just absorb what happened here. So I'll show you a little film clip, um, just a couple of minutes long from, from the passion of Christ of Jesus in Gethsemane. Gethsemane. It's, 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 it's holy ground. It's as holy as it gets. There can be dispute about where Calvary was. There is some dispute, but Gethsemane's pretty close to this one area that you can sit right in the middle of. It's really, truly holy. It's very sobering. It needs to be that way. And the problem sometimes that I can have, maybe you, is we just read these stories and it's, he was in Gethsemane and this is what happened and da-da-da and we're on to the next chapter and, and we don't stop and let it simmer. It's got to simmer. Gethsemane's got to simmer in you. So that's why I wanted to show that. It's been said, if tears could be shed from heaven, they were shed here. In Gethsemane. If tears could be shed from heaven, they were shed here. It's, 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 it's the beginning of his passion. 
and the crushing, literally represented by, the, by the, the, all of the, the machinery around him. It's, it's him, it's he's being crushed. So he said, he said, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Normally, when I pray, maybe when you pray, it's for procurement. It's to get something, procuring something from God. I need this, I want that. But it's also really supposed to be for protection from things, not just procurement. And when, and when we stop praying, and, and it's easy to do that at times, you can be tempted unnecessarily. It's really true. That's part of the Lord's Prayer, the last lines of the Lord's Prayer, really. Your kids and grandkids can become more vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Like a prayer, protection. Your marriage can be more vulnerable. Temptation, prayer, is not just for procurement, it's for our protection, too. Jesus said this, super important words, not my will, but yours be done. Can you honestly pray that tonight? That's tough. Not, there's, not, there's not two choices, because I think that's what we, we think we can do. We want a hybrid. Lord, I want your will, but I want mine too. That, that's not in the text. It's one of the two. It's yours or it's mine. And be, quite honestly, if it's not his, then it, then it is yours by default. There's no hybrid here. There's no hybrid. It's not both and. It's just, it's his will or it's your will. Jesus faced that. You faced that too. Do we look at God's will for our lives as a positive thing or a negative thing? You have to work that out in your own heart. But I'm a dad to my kids here tonight. totally invested in them and will be till my last day. If they didn't trust me to be good to them and have their best in mind, it would break my heart. Because I would think, have you not, where have I, you know, I'm not the perfect dad, but I'm all in as a dad, the best I know all in to be. I love you guys. Um, but that's exactly what we can do to Jesus, to God. Somehow with all he's done for us, it would be so natural. So where, where have I failed you? Where have I not loved you? I've promised you amazing things, but you don't want my will for your life. What is that? I have no idea what that is. I, I don't know. I could probably come up with some words. You could too, but it's not good. Jesus had two choices, his will or the Father's will. And fortunately, because he could have chosen his will, you know that. We wouldn't be here tonight. This building's gone, we're gone. I don't know, it looks like Pottersville instead of whatever, you know, in a, it's a wonderful life. But, but it, it's, that, that's, but, it, but, it, and it, it was really a possibility. God could have sent legions of angels what, 12 legions of angels, thousands and thousands of angels to rescue him in that moment. He sent one to strengthen him, not to rescue him. So you have to work that through. Here's what I think. God's will is, will absolutely prosper your soul, but you can't have it your way and his too. There's going to be one Lord on the throne of your life, and you have to decide who that is. You have to decide who that is. I hope that we're all moving towards the wisdom and the wonder of letting God be the Lord of our life. God's will, not ours. Last but not least, there was, a, there was an angel that showed up. There was an angel that showed up in, in Gethsemane. The disciples were asleep. Three times he went back to talk to them. They were asleep. And so God sent kind of a ministering angel. And I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. Where, it, I mean, I don't know if it's not like an angel. It might be an angel, angel. I don't know, but... Just somebody, some, like somebody, somebody shows up at a moment of your Gethsemane. Uh, it could be a teaching. It doesn't have to be a person even. When I was uh, a number of years ago, in 2013, I was um, 
with a really, really close friend who, who died kind of in there. I was at a go-kart track in Medford. It was a Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And so I was going to go to Medford and go to Cash and Carry and Costco and pick up a bunch of stuff so that our Wednesday night service, our Thanksgiving service, we have food. Normally, we need some cups. We need a bunch of stuff. And so I timed it so I could go to this go-kart track, the car track by the airport, and race a couple races with four friends, or three other friends from, from Edgewater. I almost said Applegate. Dang. Um, so if I say Applegate, just interpret it. All right. And so we get into this first race and having a great time. And then this one go-kart is just stuck up against the wall, up against the, just stuck, you know, which happens. But something was wrong. So they shut, the the driver wasn't responding to them, pushing them back and starting up again. So anyway, a lot to say, Russ Heater, super, super close friend, um, was at least unconscious. Don't know why. So we... Everything stopped. We pulled him out of the out of the little go kart and laid him on the track. And his family's there, and and he's not responding to anything that we're able to do. And paramedics come, and it just doesn't look great. And so, finally, about the time the paramedics are loading him into the ambulance to take him to the hospital, I, I'm I realize I I still need to go to cash and carry and Costco. That's my I got. I, I can't get out of that. So I, it's impossible to imagine, but I get in my car, all that's happening, they're going to take him to the hospital. Everything in my being wants to go to the hospital. I got to go to cash and carry in Costco. And so I am imploding. I am imploding. Um, for me, I was, I was at, I was at it, to me, it was as close to Gethsemane as my soul could, could feel. And I get to cash and carry, and I'm kind of wandering around with this list that now doesn't make any sense that any other day would have made all kinds of sense. But I'm looking at this list of stuff I need to buy for Edgewater. It's making any sense. And so I, I almost just run into this guy. His name is Clark Bonner. Clark Bonner is um, just a great guy. His dad is Bob Bonner. He's a pastor at Calvary Crossroads or was for many years. And Clark, for whatever reason, was in cash and carry that day. And he's literally standing in front of me. He's just looking at me. And I'm, I go, hey, Clark. He goes, how you, how you doing? I go, well, honestly, uh, not good. Not good. And I just give him a super brief rundown of what happened. And I, I, I am just so un, undone. And he just helps me find the stuff I on my list. And he gets me to the cashier person. And he helps me make sure I buy it and whatever. <laughs> and he helps me load it into my car, which is over at the Costco parking lot. And then I walk into Costco and I about have a little better experience so I'm more familiar with Costco and I get what I need at Costco and I get up to the, the lines at Costco. Clark Bonner. Right in front of me. How you doing? Dude, are you flying in here? What? And, and it was, he didn't say a lot. He didn't say a lot. He just was there. And he was there when I was undone. It's like, he just knew, he just knew. Somehow he knew God had told him I needed help and I needed help. And to me, he was just like that. He was just that guy that showed up and you can be that too. I, know, I hope you know that, you can be that too. I hope you wanna be that to somebody. It's so important. It happens, and if I could give you some advice in those scenarios that it's like they're in their Gethsemane, it's like, it's, it's like whatever tragic looks like. Two things, and Jesus said it to the disciples, watch and pray. That's my advice to you. I, that's, that's my advice to myself as a pastor when I get into all kinds of stuff like that. I get two things I'm gonna do. I'm gonna watch and I'm gonna pray. It's a ministry of presence. I'm just watching whoever is being affected by whatever and just seeing how I can help. I'm not giving advice. I'm not giving answers unless asked. I'm just there. I'm watching and I'm praying. And you can do the same thing. It means a lot. Let's do that last section, 47 through 65. The rest of the chapter is going to go into next week. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the 12, yeah, 
um, one of the 12 was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw uh, what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And, all, and one of them, it happened to be Peter, of course, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. He had two swords. It probably should have been both ears. But anyway, that's the way it was. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you, are, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the Crooster Road, the Crooster Road, <laughs> the, the Crooster did not row. The rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the man who was holding Jesus in custody, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is, who is that, who is that, who is it who struck you? And they said many things against him, blaspheming him. So what's happening here is Judas leads a mob to Jesus, kisses him to identify him. That is a healthy baby right there. <laughs> kisses him and to identify him, and Jesus is arrested. Peter cuts off the high priest's uh, servant's ear, but Jesus heals it. Peter follows Jesus to the high priest's house, but ends up denying him three times, and Jesus is put in custody and beaten. One, one simple application, then I'm going to close. It was Peter's speech. It was Peter's speech that made them aware that he was a follower of Jesus. It was his speech. So I guess my, my maybe point of application is, how's your speech? Would your speech, would my speech, would our speech identify us as a follower of Jesus? Because it should. It really should. Our speech should really matter. It should give us away all the time. Matthew 12, 36 and 37 says this. Jesus would say, but I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Proverbs 18, 21, one of my favorite verses say, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. I guess I would just say this. What you say is the, the words you choose how you speak is super, super important because it identifies you as a, as a follower of Christ just as it did Peter. It's super important. It always will be. And so I just want you to throw that out and just a closing thought because it's time to go here in a minute. Here it is. Closing thought. Judas would betray him. Peter would deny him. Thomas would doubt him. But still he loved them. He loved them all. Judas betrayed him with what? A kiss. Why? Because there was, a, there was affection. Jesus loved Judas. Broke his heart. Broke his heart of hearts that Judas would betray him. And so tonight, maybe in your walk with the Lord, you've been compromised by sin and selfishness. Maybe tonight you're sitting here brokenhearted. 
because of loss and pain. Maybe tonight you're just stuck. I've been stuck before. Bound to the mistakes of the past. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's our focus tonight, Jesus was crushed. And from him, from that crushing, flowed something that he would anoint you with even tonight. From that crushing came an oil of gladness. From that crushing came an anointing that can relight your passion, can heal your wounds, and can change your life. And so I would just say this. Would you pray tonight for a fresh anointing? Because Gethsemane is all about oil. And it's all about the benefits of oil. And God's oil, God's anointing is the best. Wherever you're at tonight, wherever you're at in your walk with Jesus, in this new year, if you were to ask God for a fresh anointing of his spirit, I promise you, it would be a good thing to do. A freshness in your walk with him. What was crushed from him is available to you. So Jesus, tonight, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for bearing Gethsemane, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people, Lord, that ponder your goodness. And we pray, Lord God, that what you would have for us tonight, each of us individually and even corporately, Lord, would come into fruition. That, Lord, we would be those that are applying your word in some way, even this day. So, Lord, as we head out and head into the rest of the week, I pray that we do so, Lord, desiring your will above ours, not a hybrid. Lord, give us the wisdom, give us the the faith to trust your will for our life. We really want you to be the Lord of our lives. So thank you for your love. Thank you for your great grace, Lord. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.